Hey guys, kind of exciting. We're headed to uh, kind of a different conference. It's called the ICC. It's the International Conference on Creation. They only hold it every once every couple of years. And uh, this year is going to be awesome. They got a lot of scientific papers going to be presented. Uh, we'll give you a report, try to grab some interviews and see what we come away with. All right, so I'm kind of curious what we're going to run into here at the conference. I'm I'm a little bit worried about the big words. Yeah, what are you worried about? Uh, I am sure I'm not, I'm probably not going to understand anything and things are going to go woof. But I, mean, I know that you probably do a lot better than that. Uh, I'll think now. These are like real scientists presenting real creation research. Well, what am I going there for? Good we're question. Gonna, we're going to learn. We're gonna learn. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the Creation Today Show, where we bring together interviews with experts and solid Bible teaching your host, Eric Hovind, affirms the ultimate authority of God's Word, the truth of creation, and why it matters to you. I've been, this is my, I think my third or fourth one now, and I always enjoy coming, and it's kind of like a big reunion, really. You get to see people maybe you haven't seen in a while, and make those really good connections, and just hear a lot of great talks, and what's going on, and all these areas of research, and it's just, it's just amazing. Well, I've just been absolutely amazed by every presenter here. It really has been great. It's encouraging to see so many different people studying God's world specifically because they love God. I, I wish I had come 10 years ago. My highlight is being able to gather together with fellow believers and in all of our efforts together to glorify the name of Jesus and to see God's kingdom expanded throughout the world. Absolutely incredible, fellowship is awesome. Uh, doesn't want to come back next time. You know, being at ICC is super exciting. It's so much fun. There's all new research, there's synthesis papers, there's new concepts and ideas that are being tested and batted out. We have 500 people here. It's a heat, it's a big meeting. This is fun. I thought it went really well. Um, this is the first time we've had it at Cedarville. Uh, the previous eight have been in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, the group in Pittsburgh uh, that was running it uh, very graciously uh, came to us and said, "Here, would you like to run ICC?" They gave us everything: the, the name, the the organization, and so on. And so. Uh, I think there was a desire there to make it more of an academic uh, conference. Uh, it's like Dr. John Morris used to say, you know, it's a great time to be a Bible-believing Christian. You know, it's like a tale of two cities. and In some ways, it's the worst of times, in some ways, it's the best of times. But when it comes to evidence for biblical creation, it, it, the evidence has never been stronger. And it's exciting. Two years ago, I didn't know any of these names. Now, I, I know the names. I know wow, Russell Humphreys, wow, John Nomberger, wow, you know what? Two days ago, I had lunch right here with me, Russell Humphreys and Rob Carter. And you talk about being a fly on the wall. I mean, it was like a bonus session listening to those two guys talk. And so it just been amazing. You know, I've totally geeked out with some, you know, I, I got a picture with Russell and I, I got a picture with uh, a bunch of different guys. You know, Mike Ward, I love Mike Ward stuff. I am making fossils. I started literal fossils. Literal fossils. Uh, I've got some fish here. Two of them are uh, decomposed, and four of them are fresh, so you can see the difference. And there's a stark contrast. You can tell fresh fish from decomposed. And so there's no way that you could have a fish die and slowly get buried over time without some form of decomposition. And if there is, you can tell the difference in the fossil record. And so these fossils, if a dragonfly is in a limestone matrix, it's got a little bit of iron, a little bit of sulfur, it's beginning to form pyrite. And that fossil was formed in one week. Okay, the other one is a little more cementation, a little more lithification is occurring. And um, it was uh, occurred about a week and a half. And I'm getting cementation beginning it's not complete, I'm pretty sure, but it's beginning within that week and a half. So uh, I'm doing it in my laboratory, and uh, anybody can see it on my website. Everything that I've done so far, I've posted on my website, paleogenesis.org. How's creation science doing? Are we looking good? What's going on? It's very active. You know, I think I think it takes conferences like this to realize, like, sometimes how many people are really out there doing the research. And they're also publishing, and they're getting the work out there to other people. And 
I think too, like focusing on building the creation model in so many ways, um, in all these different areas, like archaeology, biology, geology, you know, it's just, it's a lot of different sciences. Sometimes, you know, if you're in an area, you're listening to an area that's outside your own, you know, it's kind of like, ooh, it can be a little, it can be a little techie at times, but people are pretty good about giving you at least an overall summary of, of it so you get the main points and it helps advance your own learning in that. My talk will be on um, what caused the big burst of carbon-14 that was produced in the Earth's atmosphere uh, during the Ice Age after the flood. We, we have really good reasons for thinking that it was very low before the flood and it got to almost today's level about a thousand years after the flood, uh, say during uh, Moses' lifetime. Uh, so, uh, so I think the ultimate cause might be, uh, good chance that it is, the same thing that accelerated nuclear decay during the flood. You know the radioisotopes in the Age of the Earth conference, uh, uh, conference project, uh, found a, a number of good reasons, good evidence pointing to God speeding up radioactive decay by a factor of about half a billion during the Genesis flood, the year of the flood. But the same thing that would speed up radioactive decay, uh, I show, uh, would also speed up nuclear fusion in the sun. And, and so decay was speeded up throughout the solar system. We have evidence for that. So the sun's in the solar system, so that effect would speed up nuclear fusion in the sun. So uh, nuclear fusion releases energy, so the sun gets a little hotter. And if it only got 11% hotter than it now is, or brighter, uh, it would switch from a mode where heat slowly diffuses upward to a, a mode where there's convection, a bubble of gas would rise and carry a lot of heat rapidly with it. And the whole sun would change uh, its mode of heat transfer from, uh, from what is now very slow to something that is very fast. Uh, the whole sun would become convective. And uh, as a consequence of, of that, I won't go through all the details of that activity, but one thing that would happen would be there, there would be a whole lot more solar activity, and uh, it would fling out a lot more high-energy protons than it normally does. And those protons uh, reach the Earth, they hit upper air atmosphere nuclei, blow them apart, and release a, a bunch of neutrons, the neutrons come along and hit carbon-14. We knew that process was, was there, but we didn't know why cosmic rays would be higher uh, during the Ice Age. And then uh, God would slow everything down and uh, the sun would resume normal activities oh, about a thousand years after the flood. So, but during the Ice Age, uh, the sun would be brighter, trees would grow faster, and uh, would, uh, various things would uh, cause uh, the trees to have more growth rings per year uh, than just one, and that affects dendrochronology. So um, a lot of interesting things happen. I think I found just fascinating, you know, when's the latest in, you know, creation science research, and it's just fascinating to see how our older scientists are passing on the baton in a way and encouraging those young people to finish their PhDs because we need to raise up that next generation um, of scientists who stand on biblical authority, so that's really exciting. Judging by this conference, the ninth International Conference on Creationism, we are rocking it pretty hard. This is easily the best ICC I've ever been to. Some really shocking and stimulating presentations I've heard I'm full of good ideas for other aspects and other areas of research. I've seen some amazing papers. Uh, we've made some amazing progress. For some reason, many creationists don't like dark matter. 
And I'm, I'm quite stumped about that. I, I think part of the problem is it came to the discussion rather late. Uh, the first evidence for dark matter goes back 90 years. In 1933, Fritz Wicke, an astronomer uh, working in Southern California, uh, noted uh, the motions of galaxies within the coma cluster uh, were moving faster than they should, uh, than could be accounted for by the gravity we, of, the, of the amount of matter we could see. We call that, what we can see, we call the lighted matter. Uh, the more matter mass you have, the more stars you have, the more stars you have, the more brightness you have. And when he measured the motions of these galaxies as they orbit, or appear to be orbiting around the center of the cluster, he discovered that the amount of uh, dynamic mass, that is the gravitational mass required to explain that orbital motion, was a couple of orders of magnitude higher, we're talking like a hundred, factor of a hundred more uh, than could be accounted for by the lighted mass. Now, we've made some adjustments to the cosmic distance scale, and now the number's down to 10 or 20 instead of 50 or 100. But other people, and, and Zwicky as well, looked at other clusters of galaxies and found the same sort of result. And then in 1939, a man named Babcock looked at the a rotation curve of the Andromeda galaxy. The Andromeda galaxy is a disc-shaped thing, and the all these things are moving around like this. So he measured the motion of objects uh, across the, the, the visible disc of the galaxy. And from the lighted from the light we receive, which is mostly coming from the center of the galaxy, you can anticipate what kind of orbital motions you would expect based upon Newtonian gravity. And that meant that far from the center, the velocities should decrease with increasing distance. Well, to his astonishment, he found out that the velocities stayed very high or even increased. And it suggested that most of the matter was, uh, most of the mass was out way at the outer edges of the galaxy and very little of it was at the center. So it was an anti-correlation between light and matter. And uh, there were other lines of evidence that kept collecting over the years, but for the most part, astronomers ignored them. And it really wasn't until uh, the 1970s, an astronomer named uh, Vera Rubin uh, spent a decade looking at galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. And every time she looked at the rotation curves of these galaxies, she found the same silly result, far more mass required than we could account for what we see. And it really wasn't until the early 1980s that astronomers came to realize that dark matter is real. And they call it dark because it exerts gravitational mass, but it doesn't ex exert, uh, emit any light, and it doesn't seem to interact in any other way. And so its identity remains unknown. And there are a few uh, holdouts in physics and astronomy that want to hold out for some other, other solution like uh, modified Newtonian dynamics, we call it MON, that Newton's law of gravity, uh, we've tested it in the local scale over oh, a few light years maybe, but not on thousands of light years, and they want to modify that. But there's a, there's a case to be made that that's not correct, and I don't have time to talk about that right now. Um, so creationists, I think, started paying attention around year 2000 or shortly thereafter, uh, after astronomers began to uh, believe in dark matter. Finally, they were drag streaming the whole way, by the way. It took about a half a century to come around to it. They, uh, uh, they reluctantly went there, and then about a decade later in the 90s, a cosmologist began to incorporate uh, dark matter. In, in retrospect, they, they were very slow to do that, too, because uh, the belief is that the dominant force in cosmology is gravity, and if you leave out 90% of the mass of the universe, your model can't be very good. So they should have done it earlier. So even they were dragging their feet. And I think that's about the time, probably around year 2000, is when creationists started hearing about this and paying attention, even though the evidence had been around for you know, 60 or 70 years up to that point. And um, all they ever heard about was how that dark matter now was helping to solve, astro uh, solve problems with, with co the Big Bang cosmology and galaxy formation and things like this. And so there arose this belief among uh, creationists that dark matter was made up to salvage evolutionary ideas. And for those of us who've been around for a while and know the history of this, we know that is patently false. And so uh, I, I'm giving a presentation here at the ICC to try to once again convince people Dark matter is for real. It's time we really start to embrace this and make it part of our, our apologetic. Probably the biggest thing that we can get out of ICC coming from a currently non-scientist, non-degree holder position is the level of ridiculousness and atheism that claims that there aren't legit scientists who are creationists. Um, if there is anything that a layman can get out of 
this week is that that is the most bonkers claim imaginable. Well, the major thing I've been working on, Eric, in the last few years has been in the Grand Canyon. And of course, the Grand Canyon is exhibit A for evolution in millions of years, when in actual fact, it's, it's exhibit A++ for creation in the flood. And we need to be able to provide a, an adequate apologetic to be able to use the Grand Canyon. Now, one of the things that we've, we've been good at, we've been looking at the individual layers in the Grand Canyon and showing how they are a stack of pancakes that you can spread out all over the earth. You know, Tim Clary's been doing that kind of work. But um, the, the, the Grand Canyon has been carved into a plateau that got uplifted. And what we notice is that these layers were, were bent at the edge of the plateau and at various places in the Grand Canyon. And for years we've been looking at these, we've, we've known that they had to have formed rapidly, okay? And yet we had to be able to demonstrate that because it's in a powerful apologetic. And so uh, I've been looking at the layers at the bottom of the canyon, the first of the flood layers, the Tapete Sandstone, for example, and we know from other people's work, even the secularists recognise that you can trace it all over North America, North Africa, over to over to uh, southern Israel, even as far as China and and uh, Korea, South Korea. So it's a global scale pancake, and it's been bent. Now that the, the geologists say, the conventional geologists say, you know. Over millions of years, this stack of pancakes got slowly and gradually grain by grain deposition. Then over millions of years, slow and gradual, you know, earth movements eventually pushed up the plateau and the Colorado River carved out the canyon grain, you know, slow by slow by slow. And uh, we know that's not the case from a biblical perspective, but we've got to be able to demonstrate a coherent case. And... Uh, but you see, how, how do you bend a rock? You know, you, after they say that the layers, the earliest layers were deposited over 500 million years ago and the plateau was pushed up when the layers were bent at the edge of the plateau over 400 odd million years later, then, yeah, you've got a stack of pancakes there over a mile, two miles thick. It's going to press down on that. So the, the pressure and the heat is going to harden the rock, it's going to dry out, it's going to cement. In other words, the, the chemicals in the water between the grains is going to crystallise and make it rock hard like concrete. So what's going to happen to concrete when you bend it? It's going to snap. Except they say, oh, well, over millions of years, if you've got heat and pressure, it, it can heat the rock up and make it more plastic so that it bends. But Here's the thing, it should leave behind telltale signs. But no one has ever gone in and collected samples from the folds to see whether you've got those telltale signs. And so my focus was on sampling in the folds, but also away from the folds in the same rock units. Because you see, if we're right, and the layers were deposited in the first month of the flood, and then bent while they're still soft, yeah, a year later, they wouldn't have had time to dry out and the layers away from the fold would have the same features as the layers in the folds because they were still in their soft condition. And then they would have cemented and become hard after everything dries out at, at the end of the flood and beyond. And so here we've set up the, the scenario. If they're right, this is what we should find. If we're right, this is what we should find. So we go in and, of course, we were fortunate, in a sense, that I had to fight a lawsuit to, with the Park Service to get the samples. And but the lies defending freedom lawyer said, "You need to take a videographer with you to 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 watch everything you do and record it, lest the Park Service accuse you of malpractice." Well, all of that footage then is available to produce a documentary, which of course is what we've shown here at this conference, but is coming out now. And we've pieced together other aspects of this whole story um, to be able to show that the layers, the, the rocks under the microscope in the folds, doesn't matter whether it's in the really sharp bend or in the limb, the sides, or way miles away, has exactly the same features. 
There's no sign of any metamorphic effects, you know, heat and pressure effects. The, the, the cement is pristine. In other words, it didn't harden first and then get crushed. And, and all the original sedimentary features are there. I mean, you've got minerals there and pore spaces that shouldn't have been there after all that time. And so what we're showing is the layers were definitely formed at the beginning of the flood. And then the whole sequence had to be deposited rapidly because the bending was at the end of the flood. So you're wiping out hundreds of millions of years and showing that all the layers were stacked up rapidly on top of one another. You're also, we're also showing that the bending occurred rapidly. And what does that do? That sets it up for Steve Austin then to talk about the plateau holding back leftover floodwaters and post-flood rainfall that then bursts through rapidly and carved out the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I think I told you when you were in the canyon with me, Eric, I often say this to people, that you know, those that say the Colorado River carved out the Grand Canyon, you think about it. The rapids that we went over in the Grand Canyon are there because of flash floods in the side streams that dump debris in there. So many of those rapids are the same as when John Wesley Powell went through, okay? So that means the Colorado River, with all the floods that it's had between the time that John Wesley it isn't cleaning out its channel. So if it, if it isn't cleaning out its channel today, how could it possibly have carved out the canyon? Um, and of course, the headwaters are at a higher elevation than the, than the, the top, the, a lower elevation than the top of the plateau anyway. So, yeah, all these things are coming together in a powerful way, which we've depicted in that movie. But the research papers, of course, the meticulous effort, time, and, and as I said uh, to everyone, you know, I've had to produce these long technical papers because I've got to dot every I and cross every T. And if I say that this feature is in every sample, well, I've got to have a photograph of it in every sample. So the paper gets larger and larger. But that's so uh, people like you, uh, you know, I take millions of years to put this all together <laughs> and you summarize it in 30 seconds. <laughs> but you wouldn't be able to do that unless I had done the hard work. You know, for the people watching out there, creation research is alive, it is vibrant, it's exciting. Because why? Because God is exciting. I think right now it's going really well. Uh, I think in the last 10 years, five to 10 years, it's made a lot of positive strides. Well, as young earthers, we could use more young people, but that's the only negative I have. Yeah. Is that we could use more young people. Yeah, and that was exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> we need more young people coming in. Yeah. Sure. Dr. Uh, McIntosh, what's I uh, love what you do. I spoke about thermodynamics and information, and that wherever there is information, there is always an energy penalty, or you have to you have to put energy in, in order to store a bit of information. That bit um, has to use a certain amount of energy, which is called the Landau limit. And interestingly in DNA, which also causes storing information, that limit is very close to what the, land, what, what the DNA is using. So that means that DNA is hugely efficient in its use of energy. Wherever there is information which is non-material, there is a little bit of cost in terms of energy. Our phones, like the one that you're using now to film me, that's hugely inefficient. Apple, you know, they think they're great, but actually it's a very inefficient system. It's about, it's 10 to the eighth as bad, sorry, it's 10 to the eighth worse than what DNA would do. And DNA, of course, is not only storing information, it's also got little machines to unzip and zip up, you know, and all these machines are using energy. And I was dealing with that in my talk this morning. That there are laws to do with information exchange. Just like the, the second law says that, that everything deteriorates, right, mechanically and, you know, rusting out and all the rest of it. That's essentially what the second glory say. You never get something for nothing. There's always an ir irreversibility. Actually, information systems suffer the same way because information, like the printed books, the printed book, well, with time and, uh, you know, it all becomes yellow and the print begins to go away. In other words, the information, it's difficult to keep. 
Well, there are laws about that. Information gradually deteriorates. And it costs an awful lot of energy to store and store information electronically. People have got rooms full of supercomputers storing all the world's books. But it takes energy to do that. But eventually that's going to wind up, you know, lost. If you don't re retrieve it with you putting energy in. So there's always an energy cost with information. That's really what I was at pains to say. Virtually all of my work is done in the historical period. And, and the border that separates prehistorical period from the historical period is the advent of writing, when writing begins. Uh, and once writing begins, we have a lot more now uh, at our disposal to be able to understand things. And so um, one of the important questions, though, that comes to mind for believers, especially those of us who believe in a young earth, is can we believe can we um, hold to our understanding of a young earth that is thousands of years old, 7,500 years older or younger, can we hold to that view when carbon dating um, organic material suggests that it's tens of thousands of years or more uh, in age? How can we hold to our view when that's the case? So I introduced the audience to something in my area because most of the people at the conference focus on the prehistorical period and it's called the 1400 BC offset and I want to kind of walk you through yeah getting getting to that point so you can understand what's at play so what I talked about in my presentation is uh, that if we test known dates in biblical history with radiocarbon evidence from that very date to see if they match that that works all the way going back to 1400 BC. Couple examples. One would be 701 BC. We all know in biblical studies that 701 BC is when King Sennacherib of the Neo-Assyrian Empire attacked Judah. He killed. He uh, knocked off 46 cities, and then he went after Jerusalem, and he was going to start a siege there. But of course, God intervened, and that never happened. But in preparation for this. King Hezekiah of the Judite monarchy in Jerusalem, hearing that somebody's on the doorstep who's about to take over here, he decided he's going to make a number of measures to prepare for this uh, onslaught. So what he did is he took, he took the water channel that was uh, outside the city wall and he, and he hid it and he buried dirt over top of it so the Assyrians wouldn't know it's there so they couldn't access his water source. And he funneled the water all the way into the city of Jerusalem. And the way he did that, of course, is cutting through limestone rock. And so what some scholars determined or, or found out was that there's organic material between the limestone wall that his men carved and the plaster that it was coated with to make sure that it's waterproof so that the water doesn't leak through those cracks. And that uh, plant matter is is uh, able to be checked with radiocarbon dating, and that dating showed that um, it's right around 700 BC, so it fits. And then another site that um, I introduced people to is called Kirbet Kayafa. It was the military outpost, if you will, for the Judite monarchy in the lifetime of David. In fact, it was there even earlier in the reign of Saul, and when, when David went to fight against Goliath, you know, and, and, and both sides were waiting 40 days. And the reason neither attacked each other, they weren't living in tents like flannel graphs show in Sunday school. They were, the Israelites were living in this walled city or this walled outpost called Kirbet Kayafa in, in Arabic. The Hebrew name for it translates to dual gates, dual as in two. And the reason is that site had two gates, not one, like most sites did. So that site we know was destroyed in about 990 B.C., and it was only occupied for 25 or 30 years. So there was some, some um, organic material that was burnt um, and dated right, um, right at the time of the destruction. And since biblical chronology suggests to us that it was about 990, that would be a good test. And sure enough, uh, the median range with the uh, radiocarbon testing is 988 BC, two years off. So it's, it's right there. It's, it's perfect, fits like a glove. So you can do that going all the way back to 1400 BC. But 
when you get to 1400 BC, everything changes. And secular scholars are the ones who found this problem, that what we know from historical archaeological dating, especially in Egypt where things are very tight, very clear, very known, that those dates don't match with radiocarbon dates. So if it, for example, if it's like 16, six, um, 1480 BC to, yeah, 1480 BC, that they know that's when the, a certain um, occupational level dates to at a site in Egypt. Uh, radiocarbon dating dates it to about 1600 BC, which, which is 120 years off. So it's, it, the radiocarbon says, oh, it's too old. And at that point, you're left with wondering which you believe in. Well, this, this happens consistently in this period and anything older. In fact, the older you get, the more the offset is. At the end of the early Bronze Age, for example, which is about 2000 BC, that, that offset changes to up to 300 years, between 150 and 300 years, which is incredible. So what, it's, what that tells us is that radiocarbon evidence, as we go back further in time from 1400 BC, is exponentially more off than, than um, in the time period before. So that is problematic because we can know enough about certain things that go on in history from other sources and, and other means of dating that um, can, in that sense, judge carbon-14 dating. So um, then the, the final test that I uh, discussed with them was a, a sample that can be dated. That's um, according to biblical chronology that's before 1400 BC, dating to 1406, which we know is the time that the Israelites crossed into Canaan from Transjordan, and they started attacking the cities. And one of the cities they attacked, and this is very, um, you can read it for yourself in, in Joshua chapter 10, one of the cities is Lachish. And there is an ostrichon there that um, has been um, discovered in just the last few years, and I published an article on this myself in, 1920, uh, in 2022, um, and in this article, I, uh, I talk about the meaning of the ins inscription, what's there, and there's, and, and this is something the secular scholars who first published it didn't tell the reader. It has an exclusively Hebrew word, the word for honey, which is nofet. All of the other languages use um, nopet, or a form, where the, the vowels can change, but the consonants are the same. So what that tells you is only Hebrew spells it that way, and that's perfectly good Hebrew. And it's in a destruction uh, time. And this is at the end of what's called Late Bronze Age I, which is right around 1400 BC. So the, so the radiocarbon evidence um, that's connected to it, actually the ostracon, which is, which is the surface, the, the clay, um, broken off piece of pottery, a potsherd, that has the inscription, it was up against uh, organic material that had been burned. And so they could radiocarbon date it and know exactly when the inscription was laid down and it was during the attack of the city because it's right inside the city wall and there's a breach in the city wall that shows that's right where people went through and that's where the ostracon was. So uh, the dates for that, uh, the range, and I won't go into all the details, but the range is 1465 to 1455 BC. So that's a little bit too early. But if we compare how the offset works throughout all of the ancient Near East, right? That I talked about in 2000 BC, it's 150 to 300 years. And in, in, in uh, 1480, it's around 120 to 150 years, etc. If we take that and make a, um, uh, a natural um, slope with that, then, then it would be 25 to 35 years off in that, you know, about the, you know, in that, in that time of 1406 or so. So, so if you, if you take the 25 to 35 years and modify, basically use that offset that the secular scholars have developed, to use that offset to compare to the radiocarbon uh, dates for, for that uh, organic material that was attached to the ostracon, um, it will put it within the range. It, it wouldn't be within the range otherwise, but if you, if, you in, if you take into account that offset and you adjust for it, then it then it fits perfectly in that range. So what that tells us is biblical chronology fits together with secular uh, uh, historical dating for Egypt and the Levant and other areas. As long as you take into account. Yes, as long as you take into account that offset. So that explains a lot and helps us understand and deal with 
the problem of the appearance of too much age because of radiocarbon dating. Uh, there's great, great progress being made in so many different areas. I think one of the one of the most um, uh, significant ones is how uh, Dr. Clary has research looking at uh, the extent and thickness of rock layers, and he's been able to map these um, packages of rock called mega sequences. But then Dr. Baumgartner has been geophysical modeling of the effects of tsunamis, and um, the he has independently confirmed with the with the physics of tsunami um, carrying sediment. Uh, he's independently confirmed uh, the the same effects. What would those tsunamis have done? They would have carried sediment up uh, onto the continents, and then later on, um, those sediments would have been carried off the continents as the sea floors sank, became lower. Sort of gravity would drag the water off the continents. So, the model of the flood here is getting more and more accurate and different independent analyses agree on that. That's a pretty spectacular result. And one of the things I'm kind of excited about uh, now in the field of astronomy is gravity wave astronomy. There are uh, there are the phenomena that occur in the heavens that uh, can were theorized that it could be measured if you had an instrument that could measure uh, gravitational wave disruption. And it took the first, there was not a gravity wave telescope in the world until there was one. And when there was one, they had to be prepared with ideas about what they would look for in the data that the, that the telescope would collect. And now there's two, now there's three, now there's five. And the number of events that are occurring and they're able to test the models that were generated before, um, now narrow down when they had the second and third, they could actually, instead of saying some event happened, they could say it happened in that half of the heavens to then the next event. Now it's narrowed down to a small quadrant of the heavens. And then now we can, uh, we can give a quick uh, instruction to uh, people who are operating te telescopes in the infrared, in the ultraviolet, in the x-ray, in the gamma ray. And as soon as a signal or a hint of a signal begins, you can send out a, a request, look in this direction uh, and see if there's anything you find. And so there's a tremendous growth in, in just that field of knowledge that's never been known before. So we're learning things people had ideas about and they generated models. And this is just in the scientific community in general. But in the creation community, we have been working on different cosmologies and, and different frameworks for understanding how their operations of the, the substance of the heaven might work and how would we interpret these uh, ideas when the new information comes in. So we're kind of at an inflection point with information on that field. We don't know what will be discovered by the new generation of telescopes. The, the new uh, James Webb uh, te telescope is bringing new information. We think we know what uh, it might yield, and investigators have been asking for tools to measure new information. And so we just wait to see what comes in. And that telescope then, then be turned on other objects that have been investigated before, provide information that you haven't had before. So if you've seen the pictures uh, recently of Saturn and the view of the rings uh, at the, the highest detail that's uh, ever been collected before in the infrared range. So the, the, although our community is small, uh, there's a, a culture of uh, uh, training up people or having conversations with people who can address the questions that come up in that field. And then, as you may have seen, there's a, a lot of uh, interest in training up the next generation to assist or replace those who are known professionals in the time. So you asked, are there people that I respect in the field? There are many who are, are very intelligent people, well-trained, capable, and they use their creative minds to come up with solutions that uh, are, really are fantastic in, in some regards, but they may not be right. So they have to be tested. So we got to see uh, in some cases, like the idea of plate tectonics has been around for a period of time. It was new at one point, uh, and at a, at a time period when plate tectonics generally had come into acceptance when the, within the uh, geology community. For a long time, there was a debate between continental geologists and, and uh, those that study the ocean crust. Uh, plate tectonics solved a lot of problems for the, the people who studied the ocean floor. But the people who studied the con uh, continental crust, they had a different set of questions and it didn't mesh at the time. So there was conflict when those two ideas uh, intersected. And, uh, you know, some people never changed their mind. Uh, others uh, slowly adapted to the idea. 
And so it kind of merged and uh, it, the field has, has moved on. Maybe it still doesn't provide best explanations for some phenomena, but it, it's been very fruitful. So with the catastrophic version of plate tectonics that had great explanatory power that opened the door to consider some of the, some of the clues that had been observed uh, when the publication of the, the map of the seafloor came out in the early 60s, it, it had great explanatory power um, for the, the motions, the kinematic motions of the, uh, the plates on the continent, on the globe. Uh, but w with the catastrophic version of that same theory, it gave insight into how it could be incorporated in explaining Noah's flood. But there's always a danger that you rely too much on a single idea to explain uh, everything. And so the the author of the the authors of that theory, those who got together and, and combined the concept of uh, rapid runaway subduction with the motion during the flood, they've had to since uh, in in the time since uh, be flexible in their interactions with people who are looking at other data sets. So we saw some of that conversation going on this last week between uh, groups that were in, in geology uh, focused mainly, groups that were in paleontology, and each one having the things that they're intimately familiar with uh, in terms of data and models and that they need uh, very strongly to explain and they're satisfied when they can find explanations, uh, sometimes uh, conflict with a different community has solutions that are very satisfactory for their set of problems, but this is a type of form where they can communicate and ex exchange uh, the ideas. They can do it in the literature and they can do it in correspondence, but this, uh, this is a unique form where the general public who, who is interested in the answer to these questions can sort of see the, the, uh, what the state of understanding is. And so this is, uh, this is an event where some of the conflict emerged, uh, conflict between ideas, uh, but in a way they were able to articulate their own positions, present it in front of the audience so the, the audience is aware of the current state of understanding and can be anticipating uh, improvements in the future. Uh, some things are kind of an impasse right now, but I'm actually very hopeful from the things that I saw that it, there are paths forward to, uh, to look for the space uh, where solutions might exist or where they need to be explored or probed. There's just some really exciting things that were talked about and found. Uh, everything from studies in carbon-14, uh, some archaeology studies, uh, a lot of different geology studies, uh, dinosaur uh, talks, uh, stuff about dinosaur baronology and, and things like that, uh, stuff about radioactive dating. I had one of my sophomore geology students wrote a full technical paper on analyzing radioactive dating and, you know, there's all these published dates out there. and. Uh, that the United States Geological Survey has and a lot of times when they when they have one rock and date it multiple times those those dates don't agree and so he uh, published a paper on that. We've been doing research on the United States Liverpool Geological Survey um, say David database of radioisotope pages so it's called the National Geochronological Database um, and um, we did this. Basically, we're looking at uh, when there's multiple um, isotope ages for the same rock unit, for the same record in the database, do they agree? Um, so we defined what we mean by concordance, so agreeing, um, is if the, the error margins in the database overlap. Um, and then uh, then we came up with a concordance metric so that we could give a, a number for each record in the database um, and say um, this is how concordant it is. So basically how it works, um, the, um, it takes all of the ages into account from each record no matter how many there are and it'll give you a number from 0 to 1 based on how concordant all those comparisons are. Yeah, it's essentially a percentage of how many of those comparisons are in agreement versus how many of them disagree. Right, and then using that, we've done some analysis 
through looking at each method individually just to see like how much they do agree with each other internally. And then we've done some external um, analysis where we look at uh, methods and comparing them to each other, um, how often that happens. And we found that methods are like much more consistent with themselves than they are with others, which you would expect. Um, but it's a pretty striking difference that you see there because they tend to fall off a lot when you're using multiple different methods, especially if they're not the same type. Um, so like uranium, thorium, lead methods, those are all pretty similar. They, they had the best correlation with each other, but then some of them are, are much further off, especially fission track was one of the, the outliers on that side of things. Yeah. Yeah. And then we came up with like a, a pattern in which methods yield older ages, um, compared that to what the rate group found. Um, so it's, it's important because, um, this is a huge database. It has a lot of, a lot of records. Um, so we can, it allows us to say in the published literature, there's a lot of discords. Any idea on percentages or kind of any idea on like, okay, how, how good or how bad is it? What do you guys find? It's like 64%. Yeah. Our, the average score was 0.64. Um, and that's not exactly the number of concurrent comparisons on the database. That's kind of the average of all the records. Mm. Um, so it's a little early to call and say like they're this concurrent because we, we just came up with this metric and no one else has used it yet. Um, so we're still exploring that and figuring out ways we could tweak it if necessary to make it more accurate and such. But yeah, we kind of have a general idea of like about half of the records were fully concordant. Most of those are because they only have two ages. And so when you have two ages, you have only one comparison. And then if that comparison is concordant, then the whole record's concordant. Um, but at, when we looked at some of the more, uh, the more um, documented uh, records, they tended to have much lower scores, especially when they used three or more methods um, to date. Wow. So if you use three or more methods, you are, it's, it's less and less likely that it's going to be concordant, that you're going to have something that's uh, jiving with your own theory. And this is all right. using their data, their worldview, their theories, uh, and, and the, the assumptions behind them. Yeah, right. yeah, multiple methods yeah. That, that, that'll get you many different numbers, and we found that they tend to be all over the place at mm -hmm. times. Um, and we're just looking at the numbers. We're not looking at the worldview or any of the assumptions going into it. We're just looking at the, the hard facts for all these, these numbers that yeah. the database has. Yeah. And it is a preliminary study. Um, there's a lot more work that we need to do tidying up the database and stuff like that. But it's, we found some pretty neat results. Big picture, we had really good, really friendly conversations. There were multiple times where we had people that have major disagreements in the room together, talking to each other. That was one of our really big goals for this year. And as John's been joking, not that we want to do anything controversial, but we're going to have a panel discussion of feathered dinosaurs. We're going to get all the different people with positions on where the pre-flood, post-flood are, put them together and have them present why they think their position and talk to each other. And it, it went well. But Bill got along, we had good, productive conversations, and people were listening to each other. So I, th I think it was a success. The cool thing, too, is, you know, I know they don't all agree on everything, but like at the end of the the boundary table the other night, you know, four hours, and I sat through the whole thing. But then to see all eight of them on stage, and the microphone's going down, and they're like, you know, yeah, I didn't change my mind. I, I don't agree, but I still love my brother, and I want to work with them, and I want to we want to find reconciliation. And I thought that was so cool. So in the world of creation science, when it comes to growth and development. I think there's a lot of new areas of, of science and development that's happening that um, you know, as we study models and be able to create things, I think we're seeing even some collaborative efforts even from what I've seen personally between creationists and even non-creationists. We start looking at the data and realizing some of it speaks about the same thing and I've seen some of the growth and advances with that. 
Um, and of course, you know, the more that we see, the more that we study God's word and God's world, the more that it comes together. And I think we see that even those who have not traditionally approached, you know, science from a biblical perspective, when they're studying science, it's leading them to the Bible because they're seeing the handiwork of God. They're seeing, you know, the big, vast universe and the amazing, you know, design that we see there all the way down to the microscopic level of genetics and DNA and just the complexity of life. So I think, again, like scientists have said before, the more you study science, the more you study the world around you, the more it points to the designer of that world. And so, you know, I think we're seeing advances in the, the general scientific community. And I think more and more people are becoming open and understanding of that. And of course, that's our hope and prayer. And that ultimately, through the pursuit of science, people are led to scripture, to God's word, and to a savior. And that's ultimately what we're really, truly all about. Well, creation science is doing very well. Uh, I just went to a talk this morning where uh, an idea that's been around a long time among creationists, and one that I've repeated dealing with theology, we've been wrong all this time. Turns out the secular scientists have been wrong too. <laughs> and I think that's fantastic that, that we're correcting our notions. And I've been challenged with several things since I've been here. So I like things like the ICC because I learned things I didn't know before. And uh, uh, creation science is not static. Uh, you know, when I, when I first started in this a half century ago, uh, the modern creation movement was kind of in its infancy, been around for about a decade prior to that. And people staked out some positions that turned out to be wrong, like the canopy model. We don't accept that anymore. And there are a few other examples I could give. And so uh, this idea that we have to maintain what we staked out originally is not true. Science you know, changes from time to time. doesn't mean God's Word changes. It means maybe our understanding of God's Word might have been an error the first time around, but also the science has to be reevaluated. So at the ICC, it's a great place to find out, uh, you know, cutting-edge stuff where, where people are developing new ideas and correcting old ones. By and large, I'm really excited. I think this is the probably the largest ICC that we've had, and there's a lot of young scientists here up and coming, and uh, I think we're getting building some momentum. And, of course, we're, we're hosted by an institution, a Christian university that is rock solid on this issue and wants to support this issue, and there's other other institute, Christian colleges and universities are represented here that are doing the same, and ministries. And so I think we're in an exciting phase. We've just got to keep the momentum going, and we've got to keep on mentoring the young people and encouraging them. And that, that means we've got to be available to listen to them and talk to them and encourage them. But we also need to be able to provide them with the resources, and we've also got to provide them with the jobs. Because if we don't if we don't enlist them in the movement, doing further creation research, creation apologetics, creation witnessing, etc., they're going to have to go and get secular jobs that diverts their time from from their, their primary burden to be involved in the movement. So there's lots of challenges, but hey, we serve a big God, and uh, you know what what was with man is impossible is it possible with God. We can plan, but God directs our steps. Hallelujah. Amen to that. I think there's some encouragements. We've had a great conference here at the ICC. Here in, it's the first time we've had it in Cedarville. It's a great location. We've had about 400 people and 500 in the evening. Well, that's the first time we've hit figures like that, from what I understand. And I think it's great to see the young people picking up these ideas. I want more biochemists to get involved with the thermodynamics of what I've been talking about. Yeah, and, and I'd love to, to develop and other people to be able to, you know, pick up these ideas. I also work on the Bombardier Beetle. I'm trying to get people to work on that. Well, a conference like this infuses other people to get connected, and that's what the conference is all about. And I love what you're doing, Eric. May God bless creation today. I'm just much encouraged by you. We all agree on Genesis 1-1, and when we move forward from there, there may be some disagreements, but we all know that eventually God's going to grade all of our papers and we'll all have it correct. We have decades of great research and so few people know about it. Who knows about all this? And so there's like, there's a cadre of scientists, it's us. And we keep drilling deeper and deeper and finding out more and more about this particular subject or sub-subject. And, um, but 
But as you talk to the average person on the street, they have no clue that we have 50 years of research uh, into this area in this vast body of knowledge. It's like hidden knowledge. We got to get it out. We need things like um, like movies. We could use a we could use a movie. <laughs> I think we are doing well, but we have room to improve. That we we're a relatively new community. It's not been that long that we've had scientists really working at um, developing scientific models based on scripture. So I think we're making good strides at that, that we are um, bringing in lots of different disciplines, not just in science. We're getting a lot of uh, biblical experts. Having Bill Barrick here has been just a blessing throughout this conference that just recently they started the uh, Creation Theology Society that we are doing a good job bringing different disciplines of getting good quality research and actually doing science. The fact that we will have multiple people in a room that are debating, they have different positions, that's actually a good thing. That means they're sitting there arguing evidence and saying, okay, well, I think this rock layer indicates this, and somebody else comes back, but what about this? And then another person says, what about these fossils? That's how you do real science. One of our goals, I've heard John Whitmore say more than once, we want to do science better than the secular science do science. And I think we're doing well at getting people trying to do that. We do um, need to work, I think, on two areas. S3, we need to expand. We've picked up a lot of spots, but we need to expand areas we're working in. We could use more astronomers. We could use more chemists, as I talked about last night that there's lots of areas where we need just more well-trained people doing research. And I think we need to work on getting younger people and make sure we do have another generation coming up. It's a challenge. There's so few schools that are training people from a young earth perspective. And of course, every young earth creationist does not come from a young earth creationist school. My PhD was from the University of Kentucky, but we have virtually no graduate education out there. So I think one thing we need to work on is building up our education system. The other is on getting the message out to the public in a good way, and that, that's challenging, because we are doing actual science, which means our conclusions are tentative. What the scripture says isn't tentative. We all agree there was a flood, but the Bible doesn't actually say, and that corresponds to this rock layer to that rock layer. And so those conclusions are tentative that that's going to be changing. Our challenge is how do we communicate to the public that on the one hand, we this is what we know is absolutely true because God said it. On the other hand, we may be debating these things. That doesn't mean that group's the heretics that doesn't believe in creation and this group is the one true, that we all believe in creation. We're all on the same side. We're trying to understand it in the nature of science. Science doesn't advance if everybody agrees. You'd love to eventually see people come to agreement, but the healthiest way for science to go forward is to work through disagreement to agreement, that's hard to communicate to the public. And so that that's the challenge, I think, to get out to people. We are doing real science, and so there's things we are not sure of, but that doesn't mean we're not, that doesn't mean we're unsure of the big things. Well, guys, the ICC, the International Creation Conference, truly was incredible this year. I had like three hours of interviews, and I was only able to give you guys a sneak peek of some of these. Uh, truly a remarkable experience, and big takeaways are definitely this. Number one, we've got some amazing people with amazing minds doing amazing research showing young earth creation really is a viable, vibrant field that can be trusted Two, it's amazing to hear these smart guys talk and come from the perspective of it all starts with God. God gets the glory. God gets the glory for everything in his creation and do creation research with that in mind, with that at the forefront. And number three, to hear these guys do, do research, present their papers, but understand the Bible is their authority. They don't let science rule over the Bible. They let the Bible 
the Bible rule over science. So truly an incredible experience at the ICC this year. Uh, I'm definitely going to try to go uh, at the next one. It happens every four years, so i got a little bit of time. In the meantime, there are other annual events that happen. If you ever want to check it out, you can check out Creation Research Society or some of the many other events that are happening in the world of creation. Uh, jump in, get involved, learn, and then share what you've learned with somebody else. Excited about next week, we're tackling Islam as we go into world religions and cults. What about Islam? I'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this engaging conversation. To view this and many more conversations in their entirety, we invite you to partner with us at creationtoday.org partner.